The room is relationships. The room is you and me and everyone in America. What are you talking about?、Uh, the room is different cookie cutter、mm-hmm. from Hollywood. Yeah, man, you never know. People are very strange these days. What's going on? Welcome to the Room Minute, the podcast where we get obsessed with the cinematic classic, The Room, one minute at a time. You have no idea what kind of trouble you're in here, do you? Why are you so hysterical? We always wanted people actually talk about it. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh hi, Mark. Oh hi, listeners. Now there are things you should know about minutes one through three. We'll mention these in later episodes, but I figured I'd tell you up front. It was a long road getting to minutes one through three. Originally, the show was—I conceived of it last fall, but I was in the middle of two other shows, and it was taking up too much time with classes and everything else. By the time I got to it, my original co-host was out, and I needed another. Allison jumped in, and she's been cool. But one of the problems with minutes one through three was she had some technical problems a couple times. We had weekends where we were supposed to record where she was sick, and on weekends where I was sick. We had scheduling difficulties with the two guests we were going to have for minutes one through three because we didn't want to start without guests and then eventually get to guests. We just wanted to have guests right from the start. Then, so technical difficulties. We tried recording these minutes two different times before finally recording what you're about to hear for minutes one and two. As you'll see, Allison is not in minutes one and two because then there were technical difficulties that day. But both guests had made it, so I continued without her. So, then minute two, you'll hear about it again. I'll do a little introduction like this to minute two. Richard's audio also had problems as we were recording minute two. So, minute two ends rather abruptly. At the time of recording this introduction, I have not recorded a new ending for minute two, but I might do that. And then we had problems rescheduling those two guests to come back and do minute three once. As it turned out, Allison's laptop had died, and she needed a new one. And she eventually got one. And then we went back and recorded minute three. But then Richard couldn't show up. But we did it with David, and you'll hear that on Friday. We had already at that point recorded twenty-one episodes, I think it was, because we had continued on with the other episodes and other guests rather than just keep coming back to one, two, and three. So what you're about to hear does not include one of your co-hosts, even though it's our first episode. Does have some pretty good conversation. Enjoy. Oh, hi, listeners. <laughs> I'm here without my co-host for minute one, where we, we're going to talk about the logo, the opening, the titles, and San Francisco on this debut episode of the Room Minute. We of course get the、uh, we sew film logo. Originally, there were two different logos because Tommy couldn't decide between them, so he just used both. I really love the font on that logo. Yeah, there's a lot of fonts here. <laughs> It's like it's like 1984 Macintosh. <laughs> That's probably the kind of computer he was using. Yeah. And the first credit after the logo is Chloe Productions slash TPW Films. Chloe is Chloe.、Uh, I think guess it's Litsky who will be credited for casting and as an executive producer. However, is Chloe the one that's dead? Oh no! Oh Jesus! Got my producers mixed up. Yeah. <laughs> Let me see. According to the Disaster Artist, the book. She was a much older woman who lived in Oakland and was confined to a wheelchair and had never been involved in film production before, during, or after the room.、Oh, There、man. was a chance 
that Chloe was actually Tommy's girlfriend at one point. I would totally believe that. Though Greg Sestero never actually had the full details. Tommy mentions her when they drive to the site of James Dean's car wreck. Hmm. And since she's wheelchair bound... I mean, he's exactly that kind of guy though, right? Yeah. Well, I I think there's a chance she was wheelchair bound because of the accident that Tommy was in. Where he like decided he wanted to change what he was doing with his life and started getting into acting. But there's no confirmation of that because even Greg Sestero apparently doesn't know for sure. Mm. But she had absolutely nothing to do with this film. But she gets a Chloe Productions credit on the top. Do we know at all what, what Tommy was doing before the accident? Like what he was doing for work? Um, the way Sestero presents it in Disaster Artist is he did a couple of things. The, the way he made money. He sold, in particular, like cheap items to tourists in San Francisco. In particular, these little like mechanical birds, which is why he picked the name Wiseau. Oh, which is uh, right. It's like French for bird. bird. It's an altered spelling of the French word for bird. Yeah. And because people would call him the bird man out on the docks because he sold these little mechanical birds. He also, I believe, exported American blue jeans to other countries, which you can make it quite a bit of money if you get into that at the right time. And like to this day, he owns at least one entire building in San Francisco still. Hmm. Is that the one with the fiberglass jeans on the front of it? Probably. Because I was I was there a few years ago, and I just found a building with a room poster. Yes, and like these three D fiberglass jeans. Yes, it has a it has a big room ad up in the top. And oh, I yeah. wondered what that was all about. It just seemed like this strange. Uh, and that is the roof from which they filmed their rooftop footage, but not where they filmed the rooftop scenes because right. that was just green screen behind it, which is weird. They had a rooftop but didn't use it. Isn't there a commercial of him like selling clothes or something? There's a straight, it's on YouTube somewhere. He's, I don't know if it's jeans specifically, but there's a weird commercial of him, um, selling some kind of clothing from before the room. Well, you know, he sells underwear. Mm, maybe, yeah, oh yeah, those with the big, um, with the waistband, with the Wisso waistband. Yeah. At the midnight screening, they had, they sell a lot of underwear and I like t-shirts, so I wanted a shirt. They only had one shirt, and I'm like, why? <laughs> Have more options. I imagine those pants of those un- those underwear probably prevented quite a lot of pregnancies, so doing the population <laughs> a favour. <laughs> I mean, you peel your Wisso blue jeans off to reveal a Tommy Wisso waistband on your underwear. It's probably not going to be your night. Yeah, I don't know. The right the right woman. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's if true. You, yeah. If you're with the right like. The room fan. Wheelchair-bound millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's uh, TPW Films for Thomas Pierre Wiseau. Oh, Pierre. Um, there is a chance that Pierre is his actual real name, real first name. Mm. But, um, but I'm nice. even Greg Sestero doesn't know that for sure. He just has, he, he, he writes a story of Tommy's life hypothetically. <laughs> and so it's hard to tell how much of it is him inventing things and how much is stuff he actually got from Tommy. What's going on with the doc about him that's supposed to be coming out? Because I, I, didn't they unearth that he's from Poland or something? Yeah. And they yeah, um, seem to have dug up. Rick Harper went and found his family, which is part of the problem why Tommy got angry with that film. And mm. they were using a lot of footage from the room critically, so sort of legally, but without permission. Mm-hmm. And so he sued them and kept the, the documentaries called Room Full of Spoons. And right. while it does exist, you can't really see it right now legally. Or no, now you mm. could if you could get access to it. I remember seeing the trailer and it looked very interesting. But... Yeah. It hasn't been able to go to film festivals because film festivals 
just the hint that a movie might be up like in a legal dispute means they're not going to let you in. Right. And so while now that lawsuit has gone away, it still hasn't gotten into any film festivals. So it hasn't gotten proper distribution and isn't really available yet. But they are legally allowed to make it available. It's a shame. Last I heard, they haven't put it out there yet. I think the Disaster Artist movie then kind of gets all the... I think that's just going to be the popular conception of the story of this film then. Yeah. You know, I think most people have seen the film but not read the book. As in... Well, I'd say probably most people have seen The Disaster Artist, but not seen The Room, in fact. Yeah, more people have seen that. Uh, oh, really? Pans out. Well, a lot of people, they know what The Room is, but have never bothered to watch it. Yeah. And then The Disaster Artist came out, and that's a more, that's a real film with James Franco, you know, they, you go see that. Yeah, you know, and they're doing press for it and stuff, and mm-hmm. Franco's wearing a wacky plastic nose, and all his buddies <laughs> are in it and stuff. I did quite, I liked that movie though, I did enjoy it. Yeah, it was pretty I good. I did quite enjoy that film. Yeah, it was, it was nice. It, it alters parts of the story <laughs> as you do in an adaptation, but it does a pretty good representation of it. I think is it, cause I think Franco came to the room quite late, didn't he? As in like just yeah. in the last few years, someone showed it to him. Um, one of his friends, which is nuts, because I, I don't know about yourselves, but I think I must have watched it in about, put it this way, I watched it before I went to San Francisco, and that was 2012, so I must have seen it about oh, wow. 2011 or something. I don't um, think I actually watched the movie until a few years ago, but I was, like I live in LA, I do remember the billboard and wondering what the hell is the room, yeah. and thinking it was some weird like underground horror film or something. Yeah, it's got a weird, it, that poster of him, you know, the poster, it's got such a sinister vibe to it. Yeah. Um, sort of like him, because he's just got a strange sinister vibe, like he's some kind of reanimated corpse or something. It's really hard to pin down the, un- it's like a, the, the uncanny valley sort of captured in the yeah. living person. <laughs> oh god honestly yeah he looks like a i don't even know what to say like an inside out sock puppet or something this really odd looking dude i'm not just laying into his appearance but he's a really odd looking dude but then he kind of considers himself the romantic lead obviously yeah which is a strange choice but he would have been much better in like a, a vampire movie well there was a chance he was going to be a vampire here <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. If this yeah. one copy of the script you can find online still has a one moment, we'll get to it when we get to it, the rooftop with the gun, there's a moment still in the one copy of the script where he makes his car fly up there because he's a vampire. <laughs> oh, like that. that's brilliant. And it's, oh, it's he's weird. too good for our world, isn't he? He's, he seems on another plane <laughs> of existence, the mad, mad bugger. Really does. <laughs> I, the, the intro to this film, just as because you know we, the, the opening minute is, is is a reasonably dry one, um, I was kind of noting the fonts in there. So I can't remember the name of the logo font, but then the title font I think is Impact. But when the one after that, the main kind of credit font is the Alberta. I think it's Albertus, which is the one that John, you know, it's John Carpenter's signature font. Mm, um, yeah. And then they used it for like the, that movie, The Guest. I don't know if you saw that. That used it because that was kind of invoking Carpenter and stuff. Huh. And I don't know, in that really, you know, if you don't, if, if, like me, you have a lot of time on your hands, you get excited by the sight of a certain font at the start of a film. And, um, it's only re-watching this, so. I, I didn't know which fonts they were, but I do know, I do like looking into fonts, like Impact is like a classic that's been around for a while. It's 
fairly mm. basic one everyone would have. Well, it's the meme font as well, which is ironic because, you know, there's so many image macros of the room that use impact. And then I right. forgot that, like, right there at the start of the movie, it's the, it's like this, it's, it's this kind of prescient thing that this film was essentially going to become this living meme. Yeah. Um, it's totally by accident, of course. You know, I'm not that much of a pretentious knob to sort of try to reverse <laughs> engineer that into a real point. But, you know, it's quite interesting because the amount of times you've seen, you know, you're tearing me apart, Lisa, or whatever is top text, bottom text, meme stuff. Yeah. And is this, um, is it stock footage? Like, or did he, did they shoot no, this for the production? No. Or? After main pr- primary production was over, after Sandy Chaclair, the quote unquote director, had quit, they filmed the sex scenes and then they were done. Then they went to San Francisco and filmed a bunch of exterior stuff. So it was basically Tommy, Greg, and a f- camera guy and a few other people. And so they went to the roof of Tommy's building and filmed the city scenes they went up above the golden gate bridge and filmed around uh, like all of this stuff it, they filmed this it's quite nice i mean I, I work as a camera operator that's my day job and i appreciate that getting kind of b-roll like that isn't it's not the hardest thing in the world but like it's quite nice b-roll and it's shot on whatever frankenstein combination of formats i guess it looks <laughs> like film the exteriors but i know yeah. like they had what was it high definition video and film at yeah, the same time. next to each other. <laughs> just the sign of a mad bastard with loads of money, isn't it? <laughs> it's just like, ah, yeah, fine. And then he kind of tried to say he was experimenting with both formats, and it's like, well, if you've never used either before, that seems like a spurious claim to me. But yeah, there you go. Yeah, I'm also a camera operator. Oh, cool. And I, I am up here in the uh, San Francisco area, and uh, just looking at where they shot all this stuff, I've I've been all these places shooting things, you know, in the past ten years, and uh, some of them you're like, well, they probably got the shot and got away before they got kicked off for not having a permit. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. yeah, that sounds about right for this movie. <laughs> and a lot of these, it's interesting that you're saying like these are nicely done shots because a lot of them were like that. They went up, did the shot once, and then left. Yeah. Because, yeah, they didn't have permission. That, that's, that's, so these are like first takes. Nice scene setting stuff of the boats and the things moving through the bay and everything. And I mean, it, well, well, we'll get into that in the later, the third minute or whatever, but then you get Johnny kind of hanging off the side of the, the tram car. Yeah. Just as a sidebar, sorry, I've, I've been to the States once, like I said, 2012, and, and one of the my fascinations with San Francisco was because of the room, but it was also kind of Clint Eastwood and Steve McQueen and stuff. But um, I, 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 do you pay for those trams? <laughs> These old-fashioned trams. Yes. Um, the, the cable cars are operational. They're probably the last, one of the last cable cars in operation around the world. And so they, uh, they purchase the old cars from the other systems that close down. So there's all sorts of different, uh, tram cars and it doesn't go very many places. It's very, it's, you wouldn't use it for transportation necessarily. It's, a, it's like a novelty thing, right? Exactly. And it's, I rode it once. Oh, back when I first moved here about 2010. And it was like six dollars to go twelve blocks or something like that. So here's here's the thing. So I've you know I've long since uh, left the states to come home. It was just like a vacation. But um, I, nobody took my money. I tried, oh really? I tried desperately <laughs> to pay for the cable car, but there was no one to take my money. So me and my girlfriend rode around, and then it was like, well, we're here. Bye. <laughs> so I committed some kind of felony. So I don't know sure. if I'll be back in, but I didn't mean to. And uh, and the same thing happened to me in Amsterdam as well. Every time I've been to Amsterdam, I've never been able to pay for the trams. And I, I, I really want to, but there's no one ever there to take my money. Um, I'm not just some kind of serial. Yeah, I think I've seen a picture of your face over at uh, the police station. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Don't let this guy back in. <laughs> it's all right. There are, 
And now we're talking about the trams, which aren't in this minute. Sorry, yes, deviation, pardon me. Pardon it's me. okay. Um, yeah, it's a uh, scene so well. This minute we start with the, we get the Golden Gate Bridge to start, mm. which, I don't know, is this Golden Gate minute? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I made my notes, I had lots of details on the Golden Gate Bridge, and now I'm looking at them like, it's yeah. kind of boring. <laughs> I mean, it's a nice bridge. Um, <laughs> they spend 10 years. To, it's like they paint it for 10 years at a time and then they start over and start again <laughs> just to keep yeah. the paint going. <laughs> we uh, have a thing. We have one here called the Clifton Suspension Bridge and it, and it has to be constantly painted because it's so vast that by the time you finish it, you have to start again. So it's yeah. constantly being painted one way yeah. or another just because of how much surface area it has. It's crazy. Officially, the color is an orange vermilion called International Orange. Yep. Uh, it's kind of spookily famous for having a lot of suicide jumpers. Mm. Yes, it is the second most used suicide bridge yeah. in the world. There was, well, a, there was documentary a documentary about, about that. that. I saw, yeah, I saw a movie yeah. about that. Yeah, the bridge. Yeah, it's very powerful. It was a great documentary. Kind of Horribly sad, but really good. <laughs> yeah, very upsetting, but like really powerful. Um, really powerful film. It's very, de- it's destroyed a lot, isn't it, in movies? People love to oh, show yeah. the bay and show <laughs> the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. Because Tower Bridge in London, that's what they do here. Like, they will show mm. that gets smashed up, um, which apparently the new Spider-Man movie does as well. And San Francisco is the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. And in um, <laughs> X-Men 3, uh, Magneto yeah, they move it. moves it so that it goes to Alcatraz. Oh, yeah. Which, if you actually look at a map... And it also goes from day to night. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> if you look at a map, that couldn't possibly happen. Uh, the bridge is not nearly long enough to reach Alcatraz, but... Anyway, oh, man, that's just the start of it with that movie, isn't it? Oof. Oh yeah. And also, isn't the bridge on the north side of the harbor closer to Alcatraz? Anyway, like it'd be easier to move. What's the Richmond Bridge? Uh oh, maybe. It's been a while since I've been to San Francisco. Yeah, could be, but I guess the Richmond Bridge doesn't actually go to San Francisco. So. Oh, I know. I just thought it was yeah. closer to Alcatraz. It features yeah. in Star Trek a lot as well. Oh, of course. Yeah. This is well, yeah, where Starfleet right. is. It's different Star Trek movies and series go there because the Federation's in, uh, or Starfleet, sorry, it's in San Francisco, isn't it? Yeah. Though in the new, um, um in Star Trek Discovery, which I would have a discussion, they show the, uh, Golden Gate Bridge from the air and it's all covered in solar panels instead of roads. Huh. Solar panels on it, which is quite a nice kind huh. of sci-fi-ish thing. Yeah. But it kind of annoyed me because I cycled over it once and I was like, ah, oh, I can't bike on that anymore just because everyone flies <laughs> now or <with> teleports. <laughs> Now, they did begin installing suicide barriers in 2017. Huh. Good grief. Although there are somewhere around 1,500 suicides total. Uh, about 18 a year from the from Golden Gate Bridge. Damn. And one in Johnny's apartment when <laughs> everything comes crashing down. But I suppose that's exactly. like one of the last minutes of the movie. But, well, um, that, it's like a thematic thing. Start with the Golden Gate Bridge and make you think about suicide and then... The end of the movie, it pays <laughs> off. I'm, I'm not sure I'm ready, but I'm prepared to a- accuse uh, Tommy Wiseau of deploying duality of meaning on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like I can't really, I can't really think that he did a metaphor on purpose or any kind of visual match. <laughs> he struggles with singularity of meaning. <laughs> he really does, doesn't he? I think he's the kind of guy that can only cope with like a single entendre. If he tries to be sexy, he just literally describes an act to you instead of using any uh-huh. kind of substitute words. <laughs> just say um, it explicitly. <laughs> yeah, just say it out. I mean, what was the, um, sorry, Robert, you said in the email, and I hate to do this like on cast, but you said in the email, um, you were interested in my spiel on bad movies and I can't remember exactly what, what I said. That's <laughs> fine. We'll get to that sorry. on Friday. 
<laughs> good, 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 good. Because I was, I was a bit like, oh damn, what did I actually say? I talked for ages on that. It seemed like it was off the cuff, so I assume it'll come out off the cuff again. Okay, cool. Yeah, I know what my general so, kind of thesis on that yeah. sort of stuff is. So, and fair. you knew some of the classic ones, which people might end up missing when they try to come up with interesting ones every week. Well, there's a weird kind of, um, I think that's a strange power of the room, isn't it? I think this film in particular helped kind of, well, ma- bad movies are mainstream now, right? Particularly because of, um, the disaster artists, but. Some are, yeah. Well, this thing, this is what annoys me about these kind of, uh, Sharknado, Octozilla crap. Because, because they're, it's bad movies by design. Right. And, there's no point in that. I mean, because I, I, quite a lot of the point of watching a bad movie is watching some poor, bewildered idiot sort of accidentally spill their inner psyche to you. Because, like, this film is all about sexual betrayal and everything, and it's mm-hmm. been talked about time and time again, but he's, like, in, he, Johnny and Tommy are very similar names, and he's, like, in, this insanely saintly character that everybody loves. Yeah. And, you know, it's just like, dude, you're clearly talking about yourself. I mean, that's, that's mad. And he just kind of spills his guts out to us throughout this film. Again, not that we see that particularly in the first minute, but it's just like this, this amazing, look at this amazing man and what women did to him. <laughs> it's like, man, what, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like, you've got a really messed up world. Well, yeah, he's, he's exercising some sort of demon from his past in this script. Mm. You got to wonder, cause this is, I don't know if you, um, have you heard of H Bomber guy? He's like a British YouTuber. Um, heard of. He, he did a good analysis of this, so I, I you know, I kind of paraphrase it because I don't want to try and pass off as my own. And it's basically what you just said. It, if you look at it, it's one man's perspective on a failed relationship. It's his, it's his version of events. Like, so of, of course he's really saintly. His girlfriend's essentially evil. Like everyone betrays him. He's, mm-hmm. all he wants to do, do is be philanthropic and everything. And everything's against him and he has to take his own life. And it's just this kind of skewed cartoonish version of you know, it's like watching a kind of teenager's version of why their girlfriend left them. You know, it's because she's a mean, she's a mean, horrible, bitchy poo face, and I'm a great guy, and why can't she just be with me and whatever? Yeah. So it's kind of this strange autobiographical thing that's, you know, more. When taking that perspective, it it sort of works on that level because his friend is also betraying him. Denny, who he's taking care of. Turns out he's not even that great either. He's like selling drugs and then you have all of the other characters are either unrelated to Tommy's plot or just by sheer luck of casting and timing disappear. I mean, Peter just disappears for the last part of the movie Mm. when he's the one who they get to talk to and like work through their problems and then he's gone. So it's almost like this poetic luck of these other characters don't matter or are specifically bad for the main storyline. Yeah, it's got, I mean, that's, I think that's part of its problem is that it's so unbalanced, you know, there's, there's no kind of gray. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, Johnny's in the center of it and he's like this kind of beacon of light and he's surrounded by darkness, everyone's evil and then, and then it overwhelms him and snuffs him out at the end. Right. You know, uh, rather than any kind of grays that you would find in kind of more nuanced story. And you know, look at it, I mean, we're talking about it on the internet years later, like among yeah. hundreds of other voices. People are fascinated by it, and and with good reason, I think. I mean, like I said, I think I found this, I found out about this via the internet. It must have been 2010 or thereabouts. I mean, and and it was just like, oh, it's legendarily bad, ha ha ha. So I think I torrented it. Naughty boy, I don't do that anymore. It's, but you know, hands up, I'm, I'm always stealing tram rides and I torrented a film. <laughs> um, <laughs> they dug We're it out. Keeping a track of your like, crimes. I so I'm never going back to the States, am I? They won't even let me get on the plane. Um, all these major crimes. But uh, even over here, so like I was, even in 2012, I was in London for a thing. 
and I was walking through Islington, which is kind of like posh North London sort of place, and there was a massive marquee on a cinema that said, um, you're tearing me apart, Lisa. And me and my friends were just like, oh, holy shit, it's here, we have to go. And we went to kind of, you know, I've just started in the States, but the screenings where they throw plastic cutlery and stuff at the screen, and you shout all the catchphrases, and they had like themed cocktails and stuff, and it was this big party. And it was just amazing, and everybody knew. And back then, it was kind of like this little kind of, it really was the definition of kind of a cult experience, this kind of shared experience where essentially strangers gather across the world to laugh at this man's neuroses. It's a really, um, really odd situation, but he's kind of made, and he is a kind of person he's parlayed it into a kind of whole industry, hasn't he? Oh yeah. Including pants, underwear, underwear, as you'd say. I mean, the, the, those screenings sell out still, so it's make, they make money. And he sells merchandise, he sells the Tommy Russell underwears, he sells shirts, he sells copies of the script, he signs things and takes pictures for people. They sell footballs. Mm. The theaters sell plastic spoons. You, know? I, you just have to wonder what he really thinks about it, you know, because it seems like from the movie, from the disaster artist, he seems to like delude himself into thinking that it's good or something. Well, that, that's the moment that the disaster artist movie simplifies because like it wasn't one screening and he responded by embracing them laughing. I think it actually hit him really hard that audiences weren't responding how he thought they would respond. Mm-hmm. And it took time for him to realize he could just embrace and run with the thing that it became, which unfortunately means we'll never get whatever might have been his next movie. Right. That maybe would have been mm-hmm. better because he had learned something. Instead, we get the brand of Tommy Wiseau and the brand of the room and how it gets into his other things, like the Tommy Wiseau, the neighbors. I still haven't watched the Best Friends movies, but they're banked on the idea of Greg and Tommy as we understand them now. Hmm. And there's a, there's this killer shark thing coming out that he's directing. Yeah, that he's making uh, there. And it's all kind of leaning into the irony and everything. Right. And um, Well, and he's in, like, we were talking about bad movies, classic bad movies. Samurai Cop, he's in the sequel <laughs> as the villain. And, and again, that's a, that's a bad movie by design. The second one is, a yes. A sequel to a bad movie. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of ironic. The first one, no. No, God, no. Oh, God, no. That's a whole other conversation. The first one is, we'll get to this in a couple episodes, but first one is classic foreign director doesn't know what they're doing. Well, I, I don't know if this is what I said on the, um, on the Midnight Minute, but like, I think so many bad movies are tied to the kind of failed American dream and they're foreign directors doing a kind of first time feature. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's, it's kind of the American dream gone bad. This is speaking as not an American as this should be obvious, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but, but like Birdemic is the same and Birdemic has such a kind heart. Birdemic is a really kind hearted film, but it's just, it's kind of trying to be ecological and it's kind of constantly peach preaching and referencing John Lennon and stuff, but it's so ham fisted. The Room, same thing, foreign guy with loads of, like, raises a bunch of money and tries to become a movie star off his own bat. The uh, Samurai Cop, you know, director again, foreign director. Um, mm-hmm. Miami Connection, same thing. Yep. Like, it's a really strange f- thread. And um, I was just thinking, because the thing of it hitting Tommy was so really hard, uh, I think the interesting counterpoint to that is Claud- Claudio Fragrasso, uh, who directed Troll 2. Oh, okay. Because yeah. he did loads of kind of schlock movies in Italy. And, you know, one of the reasons Troll 2 is so wonky is because it's Italian directed directing. It's he and his wife, you know, he's directing in a, in a language that isn't his own, which adds to its right. own kind of wonkiness. And then loads of people ended up laughing at it. And if you watch Good Bad Movie, he's really hurt and taken back by that. And he's not leaning into it like Wisso ended up doing. He's kind of actually really not enjoying that at all. And, Admittedly, even his like America, his even his um, Italian movies aren't great, but you know they don't suffer from that kind of lost in translation element. 
And you know, hey, Fragrasso was never going to be any kind of like American success story director anyway. No, but still, but, um, you know, he's schlock directors do get better at it over time. Mm. Sometimes. Yeah, and so what, what do you think? If, yeah. if, if the room hadn't become, you know, what it did and Tommy hadn't leaned into it and he just learned something about filmmaking and then went on to make a second film, like, I feel like that would have been so much less interesting. It would have been a mediocre film at best, you know? It would have been some weird, like, twisted, low budget version of, he would have been almost like, uh, I just said a blank on his name, Woody, Alan. <laughs> I almost said Woody Harrelson. <laughs> uh, Woody Allen. Where it's like, all of his movies would still star him because he's got that sort of right. egocentric kind of thing. But he may have come up with something interesting that what he was going for here and then in The Neighbors is an interesting idea. He's talking about like how, like, you should get to know people around you and if we all loved one another, you know, the world would be a better place and all that. I mean, it's a nice idea, but it's also, it's like a very, you know, five-year-old Barney kid show type yeah. of idea, right? <laughs> <laughs> Ugly Dolls is in theaters right now, and right. its theme is, you know, be yourself. Right. That that idea will keep coming back over and over. Yeah. Because people keep thinking it's profound when it's... Well, I think that's, that's the thing, the difference between this and... When Birdemic does it, Birdemic comes off as really sweet. I mean, it's quite gruesome in places, but it's not, it never feels, the room's got a kind of strange undercurrent of sleaziness and it's kind of a bit nasty and a bit cynical in places. Well, yeah, you get a sex scene in the first 10 minutes. (laughs) Oh God, yeah, like a 50 year old man pretending to be 17, like throwing himself on a 20 something actress. Right, with a, with a teenage voyeur looking on. Yeah. (laughs) What is Denny's deal, man? Like, oh my god. <laughs> it's like they tried to clone Will Wheaton on a budget and that's what came out the test tube. It's just <laughs> strange, strange character. And then he kind of goes to sort of jo- join in with them almost when he jumps on the bed. Uh-huh. And it's like, is he supposed to be a child or is he just kind of like this weird, simple man? Like, simple Jack, you know. <laughs> um, it, it's everything about it. I just... You just got to wonder what his view on the world was before he made this film. Right. Because God knows what it is after. He's kind of gone, had all kinds of ego stroking go on, I imagine. Yeah. For the wrong reasons. Because there's, <laughs> there's not a lot of talent to be rewarded there. <laughs> um, continuing with the minute, we get a house and a dock, which I've still not been able to find somewhere in San Francisco. Yeah, uh, I, I... I looked around. I couldn't find it either. I'm guessing it it might actually be on the Marin side of the bridge. Yeah, that's what I thought. Maybe. Yeah. But trying to find an individual house on all of that coastline is hard. Yeah. And then we get, you know, another classic one, Alcatraz. Yep. And it's shot from. There's um. It's shot actually shot from Fisherman's Wharf. It's shot from the roof of Tommy's building, which is near Fisherman's Wharf. Oh, is it? Okay. Nice. Which is 555 Beach Street. Sweet. Have you been to, uh, Alcatraz? Have I? I've been to Alcatraz once, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And then I went with my wife and kids to go to Alcatraz, but it was sold out for the next four days, I think it was. Mm-hmm. We forgot to arrange ahead of time for tickets. Yep. So we did other stuff. It was still a fun weekend in San Francisco, but we didn't get to go to Alcatraz that time. Yeah, I've, I've done it twice and I think once is enough. <laughs> yeah, kinda. It's what it is. It's interesting, and it's cool to see the inside of the prison building, especially. Yeah, actually, you know what? Now that I am sort of a you know professional camera person, going in with my nice camera would be fun. 
take good pictures. Mm, nice. Oh god, yeah. I think I went with some crappy little point and shoot in 2012. Um, yeah. With like a you know a one gig SD card in it or whatever the hell I was <laughs> around with back then. Yeah. Um, There's an old prison in Philadelphia called Eastern State Penitentiary that I was able to go to a few years ago with my with my nice DSLR, uh, and it's in a really nice state of decay. So I think Alcatraz would be fun as well. Oh, brilliant! Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, I love those kind of sorry off topic, but those uh, there's loads of great kind of urbex photos and you know decayed mental hospitals and stuff. All that stuff's really really cool. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of the Clint Eastwood film Escape from Alcatraz or the Don Siegel film, I should yeah. say, which is one of my San Francisco kind of checklist things. I went and sat on the bleachers <laughs> that, that Clint sits on in the movie, even though you weren't supposed to. And my girlfriend nearly had like an aneurysm when I did it. I was like, take a picture <laughs> of me. I want a picture. <laughs> <laughs> Again, just come into your country and break all the rules. Yes. This, this minor crime spree. We'll have a list at the end of the week of all of Richard's crimes. I don't know if like the NSA are listening. <laughs> <laughs> They developed cast to catch monsters like me. Uh, then we get Greg Sestero's screen credit. He did have a few roles before this. He was on Days of Our Lives. He was in an uncredited and I believe entirely cut role in Patch Adams. Oh. But his agent liked to use that as a promotion when <laughs> sending him to parts that he was in Patch Adams. Uh, he was in Gattaca. He was in an episode of Nash Bridges. And his biggest role before the room was playing young Toulon in Full Moon's Retro Puppet Master. Mm. Speaking of bad movies. And which, it's funny, he has a somewhat genuine French accent because his mother is French. But his accent in that movie where he's speaking in a French accent comes across as very fake. Is that one of the... Because I've never seen the Puppet Master series, but they end up going back to World War Two. Is that right, Puppet Master? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he is the guy who originally made the puppets during World War II. Oh, Cicero plays that role? Yeah, he he plays young Toulon. Okay, cool. Wow, that's quite a big... Fair enough. Yeah, it was a big part, but it was like the fifth or sixth movie into the series, (laughs) I think. Mm. I give give a lot of credit to Cicero. I think he he was equally... He was just as smart as Tommy in the way he parlayed a career out of this and yeah. the book and everything. You know, I, th- I think he's done what he's done really well and, and just told that story well because it's a story that needs to be told and he told it well and to essentially have taken that on the chin in the way he did because bless him, he was trying to branch out as an actor and got involved with this nutcase <laughs> and kind of dragged into this film. Yeah, and he managed to do the book and still maintain a relationship with Tommy. Yeah, mm. yeah, because his his book. Uh, he presents a backstory for Tommy with a lot of detail, but he presents it as hypothetical. So I think Tommy was okay with it. Hmm. Right. Unlike the uh, previously mentioned documentary where Rick Harper went and found Tommy's background and like found things that Tommy didn't want people to know. It's not that Tommy's hiding anything weird. He didn't like launder money for the mafia or anything, which some people theorize at one point. It's just he doesn't like telling people things. Like, he he doesn't lie and say he's from New Orleans because he doesn't want people to know where he's from. He just likes New Orleans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was I was really concerned for quite some time that it was going to be revealed that he was some kind of war criminal that had fled from, like, you know, Yugoslavia or something, and <laughs> flamethrower to a school full of children or whatever. And Because he was so weirdly mysterious, and it felt like he was hiding something, and it seems like he's just private. Yeah. But, like, before... Because I, I know um, there are tons of Polish people in the UK, and I've got loads of really close Polish friends. I never would have guessed Wiseau was Polish. Ever. <laughs> he doesn't sound Polish at all. I mean, there's not a lot to go on, I, I admit, but I know loads of Polish people. 
And most of the immigration to this country came, was in the last kind of 15 years. And that was back when I was working in the hotel game. And like, I met loads of Polish people then. And, you know, I've got quite involved in that culture and stuff, um, in the Polish community in my town and whatever, from having mates. Never would have thought he was Polish ever. <laughs> Never ever. It's because he's so a, if, if you were going to ask me where Tommy Wiseau came from, I would say, yeah, they cracked open a mountain whilst they were trying to mine coal and they found an egg. And the egg cracked open and this creature emerged in a leather jacket. <laughs> and that was Tommy Wiseau. Strange alien man. Yeah, I mean, we would almost guess Romanian or something. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, we lost Richard. That's okay. Uh, we'll get him back for the next one. Well, we'll get him back in a moment if he comes back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Wiseau told Greg many times that he wrote the part of Mark just for him. And the disaster artist Sistero says, I was never sure how to take this. <laughs> yeah. It's not a, uh, it's not a stellar character. No, no. Okay, then I have a few notes from a midnight screening. Notes from a midnight screening. The audience, of course, cheers the logo because the movie's on and they're all excited and they've been throwing footballs around and everything. Right in the first minute, we get one of the weirdest cheers from midnight screenings. When they see the water under Golden Gate Bridge, they scream water. When they see the house with the dock, they scream water. (laughs) And when they see water at the end of the minute, they scream water. It's a weird ongoing thing that people keep screaming when they see water or fire in this movie. Interesting. I guess it's just one of those organic things that just happened. Yeah. Someone did it. And then some other drunk person thought that was funny, <laughs> and now it's just a thing. Yep. Uh, so, David, if the audience wants to hear more of you, where can they, or you want to promote something? Yeah, sure. So I am part of a podcast my co-host Matt and I do called Airplane Minute. Uh, we went through the whole movie Airplane, the classic comedy, uh, one minute at a time. We are currently recording the second season with the movie Top Secret. I also do another movie podcast, um, not a minute one though. It's called Sequel Harder, where we take a movie series, uh, that starts good, you know, a great movie and awful sequels is how we phrase it. And so each episode covers a whole movie franchise and we figure out where it went bad and <laughs> how it could have been fixed. And that show exists already? Yeah. Yeah. We're in our second season. We started with that. That sounds fun. I gotta, I gotta look Yeah. We up. started with Die Hard and, you know, we cover a lot of the well-known franchises, a lot of superhero stuff at this point. Richard, if the audience wants to hear more of you, where might they hear more from you? Uh, we are at, we are on YouTube. Our channel is called uh, Valverde Broadcasting, which is named after the fictional country from Stephen E. D'Souza scripts. And I do that with my friend Duncan Casey and we have a movie show every Monday. Um, we do feature length commentaries on movies and just random little bits of other stuff and live streams and whatnot. So you can find us there. So it's nothing wrong when people make fun of the project, in this case, the room. The Room Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. Follow The Room Minute on all the obvious social media. If you've got any stupid comments after the show, you can leave them in your pocket on Facebook. If you like what you hear, throw us a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. Thank you for listening. And remember, if a lot of people loved each other, the world would be a better place to live. Leave us!